So what things cause you to stop in awe and wonder? Perhaps you like astronomy, and when you go out to the Leeward Desert or the desert last night, like we were in the, at the carols in the desert, and you look up at the sky, you just jaw drop in amazement and wonder at the expanse of the skies. Maybe it's architecture, and when you come to places like the Eiffel Tower or the Grand Mosque, you're just taken, and your breath has just gone away, and you just stand in awe of the architecture that you see. There may be some in this room for whom this happens when you visit museums and you walk through all of the exhibits like they have at the Louvre and you see all the different art forms and the creative aspects of how God has made his people. Or maybe you marvel at the intricacies of the human body or various aspects of science. The chances are there are probably many things that cause us to stop in awe and wonder. But there is nothing we could see, nothing we could imagine that is filled with more wonder than the birth of Jesus Christ. And the reason we take time to focus on the birth of Jesus every year during the Christmas season is because we need to remember the wonder of it. Because it's when we remember the wonder of it that we stop and we stand in awe of what God has done. It's when we remember the wonder of it that we respond in appropriate worship to His holy name. Our passage today is Galatians chapter 4, verses 1-7. through But before we dive fully into the passage... I want us just to marvel at what it shows us about the birth of Christ in verse 4 alone. So look at Galatians 4.4 with me. But when the fullness of time had come. Now pause right there. What Paul means by the phrase the fullness of time is the completion of a particularly appointed time. So this was a time appointed by God. And he's essentially saying to us, it was the perfect time for Christ to come. I just want to think about how was it the perfect time? Well, if you know history, Roman peace, the Pax Ramona, had extended over most of the civilized earth. They had built great roads that connected the cities for travel and commerce. And the Greek language itself was so pervasively widespread throughout these cities that most people spoke a common language. Commentator James Montgomery Boyce suggests that it was even during this time that pagans cried out against the great immorality that had existed and show us that there was an evident spiritual hunger in this season. This was the appointed time that God had according to His sovereign plan. It was the perfect time when Christ would come because the coming of Christ and the gospel would be easily proclaimed throughout the world to hearts that desperately long for it. Just marvel at the plan and purpose of God. We keep going in verse 4. We read that it was in this time that God sent forth his son. Now pause again. 
Notice what Paul shows here. He shows that Jesus Christ was sent, not created. In John 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Apostle John goes on to show us that the Word he is talking about is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ eternally existed in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit. He existed full of power and glory, worthy to be worshipped and adored. And this Son is the one God sent forth. Keep going in verse 4. We read that He was born of a woman, born under the law. Now there are several things that I think we could pull out and probably spend a lot of time thinking about them including the fact that it shows us Jesus was fully human. But I think the primary thing we're shown here is the humility of Jesus. What we're shown here is that God the Son that existed in eternity past, that was sent forth, took on the limitations of our humanity. Philippians 2.7, Paul puts it this way, that Christ emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, God the Son put aside the rights to honor and glory and power, and He became like one of us. The Creator of the law put Himself under the very law that He created. What wonder! What wonder is the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Does it make you stand in awe? Now, for the rest of our time together, let's add to that wonder by considering why it took place. That's the goal of our series this year. We want to think on why was Jesus born? And Galatians 4, 1 through 7 reveals a marvelous reason. So start with me by reading Galatians 1 through 3. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also... When we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, if you remember in verse 4, verse 4 starts out with the word but. And what that does is signifies that verse 4 is a contrast to what Paul has said previous to this. So verses 1 through 3 that we just read are that contrast. And what they mainly do is they point to a need that we desperately had that made the birth of Christ necessary. And the main thing they reveal is that we were slaves. We were slaves. Verse 3 says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved. Now for us to understand what this means, I want to work through kind of two questions that we should ask in response to these verses. And the first is, what were we enslaved to? Look again at verse 3 and how Paul continues. He says, We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
Well, that's really clear, right? <laughs> what, what do you mean by the elementary principles of the world? It's not the easiest phrase for us to understand. And in fact, you may have a translation in front of you that says elementary spirits or elements. You see, the original Greek for elementary principles is actually one word that can mean either basic principles of something, it can mean components of the material world, or it could mean spirits being in control over this world. That's why there's variations of translations, because the translators are trying to see what Paul intended by this word. And to understand it, we need to see how it's used in this passage. We need to look at the context and try to think through what does he mean by this. And first thing that we need to understand is that Paul in Galatians is teaching against a false teaching that said works of the law, like circumcision, like the observance of holy days, are still necessary for people to be saved. You see, what had happened in this church is some people had creeped in called the Judaizers. And they were trying to tell this church that they still needed to observe Jewish ordinances and festivals and holy days in addition to faith in Christ. And if we were reading Galatians up to this point, what we would see is that Paul has emphatically told them, absolutely not. He has told them that no man is ever justified by any of his works. No man is ever made right before God by anything that he can do, but only by faith in Christ alone. You see, all of humanity stands before God with nothing but filthy rags on. And what God does in Christ is He takes those old garments and He clothes us new in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the message of Galatians. And Paul is using chapter 4 to drive this truth home into our hearts and to pull them out of the grips of this false teaching. And so what he does, as we've seen, is he contrasts the position of a slave to that of a son. And he relates this to their position as slaves before Christ and as sons after. He wants them to think about something that has changed in order, them to beckon, in order to beckon them away from this false teaching and what they are doing. So for us to understand the elementary principles of the world, we need to understand what has changed. And what is Paul wanting them to avoid? And why is he wanting them to avoid it? And we find this a little further in our text in verses 8 through 11 of this chapter. Look a little further down in Galatians 4, 8 through 11. This is what we see. Paul writes, Formally, so before all of this, when you did not know God, you are enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Now we'll see a few things in these verses. First, notice that enslaved is repeated. 
just like we saw in verse 3. But this time, Paul shows that they were previously enslaved to those that by nature were not gods, which is their idols and the demonic influence behind all idols. And we know that this is what Paul means by that because of what he says in 1 Corinthians 10.20, where when talking to the church in Corinth in relation to food sacrificed to idols, he writes this. He says, What pagans sacrifice, they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So all of idol worship is ultimately demonic influence. Now notice also that we see the elementary principles of the world repeated again. And there's something that they would be going back to. It's linked to their idol worship. It's something they would turn again to that they were enslaved to before. And finally, verse 10, though, throws a little curveball. And there Paul points to the Jewish laws and ordinances and festivals and days. That's what he means by days and months and seasons and years. So what we can see is that Paul is relating these Jewish ordinances to their slavery to idols. And when we put all this together, what we see then is that the Galatians, the people in Galatia, were changed from being enslaved to idols or demonic spirits which was enslavement to the elementary principles of the world. And Paul wants them to avoid turning to the Jewish ordinances and laws and holy days because it would be turning back to that enslavement under the elementary principles of the world. So I know this is probably getting a little confusing, but we're trying to answer the question, what are these elementary principles of the world? And I think we have two options. They're either demons or they're principles of the law. And commentators have kind of gone back and forth of which one it is. But I don't think we have to choose between the two. You see, I think what we can say is that it's the demonic influence of this world that leads to idol worship, sin-filled immorality, and the wrong use of the law. And there are two passages outside of Galatians in Paul's writings that lead me to this conclusion. Let me go through those really quickly. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. You may know Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is everyone. Following the course of this world, Get this, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So did you catch what Paul is saying here? He's saying we all once lived following the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to Satan. You see, Satan was our taskmaster. And he was leading us to live within the passions of our flesh. Passions that Paul in Romans 7 says they seize the opportunity from the law, for sin from the law. But sin, church, is not only found in the act of breaking God's commands or in immorality or in idolatry. The scriptures constantly reveal 
that sin is also found in seeking our own righteousness and seeking to obey the law for the sake of self-righteousness. And that's what the Pharisees and the Judaizers were doing. And this passage shows us that one of Satan's great deceptions, I want you to hear this, one of his great deceptions is to lead us to obey the law of God in our own self-righteousness, not through faith in Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15 makes this clear that this is one of his deceptions because there Paul is writing to false prophets about false prophets again to the church in Corinth this time. And he says this about them. He says, For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Now just let that sink in. It's actually kind of a scary thought when you think about it. Satan and his servants often work by making it seem like they are leading someone to righteousness. And this is what was taking place with the Judaizers in this church in Galatia. They were trying to deceive them by saying they still needed to obtain their own righteousness. So what we see through the Bible is that Satan and his demonic influences have everyone that is outside of Christ enslaved, leading them to all kinds of evil, idol worship, sinful passions, and a self-righteous pursuit of the law. And this is why I think when Paul says the elementary principles of the world, he's talking about the influence of Satan and demonic forces behind all the things that we do. I want you to encourage you to keep studying on your own. I think, especially for those of us who may be from more of a Western context, we don't often think about the spiritual world in the way that we should. But again, the main point Paul wants us to see is that we were enslaved to something. And this leads me to the next question that I think we should think through in this portion. And that's, what does Paul ultimately want us to realize with this enslavement? Why is he talking about it? And if you look at the beginning of verse 3, it says, in the same way we also. And this shows us that our slavery to the elementary principles of the world is meant to be seen by Paul as similar to what he has said in verses 1 and 2. He's linking them together. So for us to see what he wants us to see in this, we need to look at verses 1 and 2 and kind of figure those out. And this is what he writes. He writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now what Paul does here is he gives the cultural illustration for these people of a boy becoming a man in order to help this church see his point, and it'll help us see ours as well. You see, in Jewish, Roman, and Greek law, there was a fixed point in time where a boy became a mature man and officially received the inheritance. In the Jewish law, it was his 12th birthday. 
In the Greek law, it was his 18th birthday. The Roman law wasn't quite as defined, but it was always somewhere between the 14th and the 17th. And the point is, there was a defined point in time when something took place and that child became mature enough to receive the inheritance. And before that, even though that child was an heir of everything, they were under guardians and managers and no different than a slave. And I think what this illustration is meant to show us is that until something took place, we were never as free as we thought we were. I want that to sink in because that's the truth, is outside of Christ, freedom does not exist. You see, sometimes people say when you come to Christ, you have to give up your freedoms. Oh, no, 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 no. What you need to see is before Christ, you were never truly free. You were enslaved, Paul says. Everyone was under the bondage of the law and of Satan's influence. And Satan used the law to entice all kinds of sin in our lives, including self-righteousness. We were all in the position of slaves. You and I were slaves. And something needed to happen to gain that true freedom. And what we discover in the rest of this passage is that something outside of us needed to take place. And this brings us to verse 5, where we begin to discover the amazing truths of what Christ's birth brought about. Let's read Galatians 4, 4, and 5 together. But, again, contrasting to that position of slavery, but... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we've already seen the truths of verse 4 about Jesus' coming. And in verse 5, Paul gives us the goal of His coming and the purpose of that goal. And he shows us that our redemption changed our position. To redeem means to obtain or to set free by paying a price. And it's a concept consistently used in relationship to being freed from slavery. And what was this price? You may know it. We see the answer in Galatians 3.13, which tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The cross of Jesus Christ was that price. Ephesians 1.7 says that in Christ we have redemption through His blood. The eternal Son of God who took on flesh gave His blood to redeem us. He paid the price that was necessary to free us from this slavery And then the purpose of this redemption, this is where it gets so beautiful. We see it in verse 5. It's that we receive adoption as sons. What we receive through the redemption of Christ is a change of position from slave to son. Now I want you to think about that. It's not just slave to free man. 
It's slave to son. A slave has no rights, no hope, and no security. But a son has full rights to his father's estate. Full hope of inheritance and perfect security. A slave serves in bondage. A son walks in freedom. But there is a great depth of this adoption that God wants us to see in our passage. And to see it, we need to get to verses 6 and 7. So look there with me. Galatians 4, 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. I honestly don't think there's a summary statement that can capture the depths of what we see here. But in an attempt to try my best, what I think we see here is that through adoption, we are filled with love and hope. I just want you to start by focusing on the words of verse 6 and thinking on them deeply. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is a massive and profound statement. How do we know that we are sons of God? Because God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. God pours out His love into our hearts when He adopts us into His family through the Spirit. And then just look at the nature of this Spirit. This Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Do we understand how amazing this is? Abba, as you can see, is not an English term. It's an Aramaic term. It wasn't translated to Greek and it wasn't translated to English. And that's because it's a unique, effectual, familial term that was often used by small children for their father. And church, effectual, familial terms are used by members of a family that are secure in the love that they have. When my children were younger, they didn't call me Dada and reach up with those arms, because at some point in time, I sat them down and said, now kids, if you want me to pick you up, you need to say dada, and reach up like this. No, they did it because they knew the love that I had for them. And they knew that as I heard that, and as I saw that, I would turn, and I would embrace them and pick them up into my arms. You see, that's this term that we can now say, of God. And the first time that we see anyone use this in relationship to God throughout the entire Bible is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before Jesus' death, He shows us a familial, loving intimacy with God so close that He cries out, Abba, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. And His Spirit has been poured into our hearts to now cry out, Abba. Abba, Father. 
I need you. But it keeps getting better. Look at verse 7 and think on what it says and means. It says, so you are no longer a slave. It's not you anymore. But you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. We are heirs through God. I'm increasingly convinced that the hope we have in Christ is something that we need to think on and meditate on more in this Christian life. And we don't think on it enough. Look at these words before you. Take a moment to just let them sink in. What hope does a slave have? At best, a slave has hopes to one day obtain his or her freedom. But do you notice how much greater our hope is? It's not merely freedom from slavery. It is, was, and always will be an inheritance as adopted sons. God doesn't simply give us the hope of being freed from sin, as blessed of a hope that that is, and as much as I long for it. He says that we are sons. We are heirs. We have a glorious future that awaits us. Can you feel the weight of that? Can you feel the weight of that? You see, here's the problem I see too often in our lives. It's too often our hope is placed solely in this life alone. We hope in our jobs. We place our hope in our families. We place our hope in our love lives. We place our hope in our team winning the championship or a raise at work or healing from sickness or a move or a vacation. And by God's grace, we get all of those things very often. But church, our hope is so, 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 so much greater than anything this world has to offer. Our hope, our hope is to behold the glory of God in all of its majesty and splendor. Our hope is to see our Savior Jesus Christ face to face. Our hope, church, is never-ending joy as we receive the inheritance promised to us through our adoption as sons. This is one reason why Jesus was born. To secure our adoption as sons, releasing us from slavery to sin and Satan, and filling our hearts with love and hope. What wonderful truths. Let me end with just a few takeaways for us. First, are you clinging to the redemption Christ provides and not your own works? This is the greatest question that we can answer and ask. As I mentioned earlier, Satan is crafty and clever. And I want you to hear this. He is happy for you to come to church week in and week out. He's happy for you to be connected to a home group. He's happy for you to even obey God's commands and sacrifice for the sake of others. If you're doing it all, to obtain your own righteousness. If you're doing it all in self-righteousness, Satan has won. Because if he can do that, 
He can deceive you and cause you to miss the only place where your hope is found. Because it's never found in any work you can do. Don't trust in your righteousness. Your works will never save you. Turn to Christ. Confess your helplessness and cling to the work that He accomplished at the cross. And keep clinging to that day after day until He takes you home to glory. That is our only hope. Are you clinging to the redemption Christ provides and not your own works? The second takeaway Do you run to the Father who loves you for hope in your times of need? I genuinely think we can read the statement of verse 6 that we can cry out to God, Abba, Father, and we can fail to see its massive implication. You can run to God like a child runs to his father. You can look up with spiritual eyes and you can say, I need you. And he is there, ready to embrace you in his arms. And this isn't something that we're only invited by God to do. It's something that he expressly desires for us to do. Because he placed his spirit in you to cry out this way. He gave you his spirit so that you would run to him and see your need of him. So church... Do you run to God first in your times of need? Do you run to Him most often in your times of need? Do you run to Him at all? Or do you look for that other source of hope? The final takeaway. In light of our series this month, in light of this season we're in, I want you to think about Are you filled with wonder at the birth of Jesus Christ? Are you truly filled with wonder when you think about what took place? I began this sermon by asking you to think on the things that cause you to stop in awe and wonder. And my prayer has been for you that this passage, that these truths, that this Advent season will cause the birth of Christ to be one of the first things and most predominant thing that comes to your mind when you answer that question. I couldn't help but sharing these words by Edith Lillian Young as she wondered at this. She says, Worthy. Oh, no. The marvel of it is that I should know such boundless love as this. And so I'm rich With Christ, I'm joint heir, since he once stooped my poverty to share. We were at the dinner table the other night doing an Advent devotional together as a family, and one of my daughters said, very frankly, it must be hard for someone to come up with 24 different things to write about only one thing. We laughed at the candor. It's true we think that way. But the truth is, church, we could write lyric after lyric 
line after line, devotional after devotional for thousands of years. And we will never come close to expressing the wonder of what happened at the birth of Jesus. So let it fill your heart this season with awe and wonder anew this year. Or for the first time, if you have yet to see it in its glory. Let your heart be filled with the things that only a holy God has done and can do for you. Would you stand with me as I pray this over us? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us who were under the law and to give us adoption as sons. We thank you that we now have the opportunity to cry out to you, Abba, Father. We thank you that we are now heirs and that we have hope and love. God, I pray that you would seal those truths into our hearts. I pray that you would cause us to be filled with awe and wonder. I pray that you would use this to magnify your name in our hearts and in our church. That we would never be the same. I pray that you would meet those here that do not know you yet. And right now in this moment, you would open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray this according to your matchless and holy name. Amen.